Altitude is a monthly podcast brought to you by Nats, the UK's leading air traffic control company. In the show, we talk about current and prominent aviation topics. In this Christmas episode, we're joined by Die Hard 2 megafans, A.D. Dolan and Chris Jones, alongside commercial airline pilot Lindsay McGregor, as we unpick fact from glorious fiction in what is arguably the greatest Christmas movie ever made. Enjoy the show and find out more at nats.aero forward slash altitude. Hello and welcome to this very festive Christmas episode of Altitude, our monthly live stream looking at the world of aviation and air traffic control. My name is Andy Dolan. I'm an air traffic controller at London Heathrow, and I'll be your host this month. Over the past year that we've been doing these live streams, we've covered everything from sustainable aviation to the impact of the pandemic, the history of air traffic control, and the international world of air cargo. And whilst that's been incredibly interesting, let's face it, none of it is quite as exciting as the subject that we're going to talk about here today. Aside from being one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time, the timeless classic Die Hard 2 features some of the closest depictions of air traffic control yet committed to film. The story of how a terrorist group manages to commandeer an entire airport on Christmas Eve, whilst a man in a chunky knit sweater climbs through the baggage sorting facility, is a tale for the ages, and I think contains lessons for all of us. But how close is it to real life? Well, very actually. And what really happened to Windsor 114? An avoidable tragedy. To answer that question, I'm delighted to be joined here today by two subject matter experts who I'm sure can help me find the truth. Please welcome my Heathrow Tower colleague and diehard mega fan, Chris Jones. Hello, Chris. Thanks, Aidy. Pleasure to be here with you both. And we also have the wonderful Lindsay McGregor, a pilot who used to fly with General Esperanza, but now flies for a large UK-based airline. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, guys. How are we doing today? Pretty good, thank you. As ever, you can put your questions to us in the Q&A box on the screen. We will try and get through as many of them as possible at the end of the show. And of course, as you may have seen, we also have a very special extra guest for this episode. Last week, I had the absolute honour of speaking to Stephen D'Souza, the screenwriter of both Die Hard and Die Hard 2. So once you've heard what we think, we'll be able to hear from the man who really knows. But before all of that, Chris and I are mega fans of the movie, but Lindsay, I understand that unbelievably, you've only recently watched the film. What did you think? Well, I have to say that for the last, I don't know, 21 days, which roughly coincided with my invite here today, this has been by far my favourite Christmas movie, without doubt. Um, I loved it. I thought factually accurate, exciting, good plot line, good cast. What, what more could you want at Christmas time? Well, indeed. And, and Chris, would you would you go along with that? Yeah, 100 percent. At risk of a temper tantrum like childish like from myself, I forced my wife and sister-in-law to watch the movie again last night. And uh, it was actually their first time. And they both agreed that it is the best Christmas movie without a shadow of a doubt. Incredible, Incredible that we're, we're converting people right here a few days before Christmas. And, and having watched the movie, Lindsay, you now know that the premise of the film is basically that the whole the whole Dulles ATC is is effectively commandeered by the evil Colonel Stewart and his his band of merry men, and the aircraft can't get in touch with the tower. They're all very low on fuel. Uh, but in one of the first scenes of the movie, we see Colonel Stewart conducting uh, a naked Tai Chi session in his motel room. And, and Chris, I'm intrigued. Is is that the kind of prep 
that you would normally go through before a shift with Whitewatch at Heathrow Tower? Yeah, usually pretty much every shift. Uh, I like to be myself my, mindfully prepared uh, for, the, for the day's traffic. And, uh, and I know you're asking the question tongue-in-cheek because you've joined me once or twice, Eddie, uh, on, on that task. Um, I, I love the way after that scene that um, the, the bad guys all storm out of the uh, hotel room in perfect military unison. And it's kind of a it's kind of a imagine the entire White Watch just peel off their driveways at five thirty every morning, ready for their morning shifts. <laughs> In their Teslas, maybe yes. I have to. Um, I just have to say that the next time I speak to you know air traffickers at work, specifically White Watch, I'm gonna there's gonna be associated images. You know when you hear someone's voice and you think, I wonder what they look like in real life. Yes. And I don't have to look any further. Well, I can tell you absolutely 100%, Lindsay, that whitewash do not look like e evil Colonel Stewart. <laughs> uh, with all not the clothes. Um, one of the mysteries of air travel when we get to the airport is always how you check your baggage in and depending on the airline that you're flying with, uh, you receive it again at, at the other end. And in Die Hard 2, we get that great insight into how, it, how a complex baggage facility works as, uh, as, as Bruce goes into the uh, into the into the facility to chase two of the bad guys at the start of the movie. Lindsay, do you recall that scene? Yeah, I do. And, 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 and is it representative, do you think, of, of how airport baggage systems actually operate? Well, I actually think it's black magic. It's very similar to what to the weather radar system that we have on board our aircraft. And I just hope that when I fire my bag and you, it, there's two clicks of the button when you launch your bag, down the baggage loading loading system, the first button's like, do you want to send it? And you think, I really hope I see it again. <laughs> and then you have to click again to say, yeah, please definitely go. And it fires off down the uh, the conveyor belt. And I just hope that, you know, it appears at the other end because otherwise it's going to be a very long night stop. Indeed. CJ, there's a, there's a lot going on in that baggage facility. <laughs> that, that whole scene gives me uh, massive OCD issues, especially... <laughs> especially this time of the year where people are traveling all over the world to see loved ones. And if you don't have your baggage turn up uh, at destination, it is such a stressful occurrence, isn't it? And Bruce is just basically whipping up some big trouble down in that baggage hall. But I'm surprised he can see anything because it seems to be a steam-driven system as well, <laughs> which I'm, I'm not familiar with. Indeed. And not only that, a very inefficient steam-driven system too, yes. because there's so much steam escaping out of every possible turn and twist of every pipe available. Yes. And of course, we see the death of the first terrorist, which which is an interesting way to go, CJ. Yeah, I, I, again, it, I think it must be 1980s baggage systems. Maybe it's a US thing only, but I'm not familiar with a system that basically tries to turn baggage into pancakes. Uh, <laughs> maybe uh, maybe Stephen DeSouza can explain that one to us later on uh, when, when you have your chat with him. But uh, I guess it makes a brilliant kind of jeopardy moment in the scene, doesn't it, where Bruce has got to kill one of these bad guys and we can't keep hitting them with golf clubs. So uh, we, have this, we have the pancake smasher instead. It's, it's definitely an interesting way to go. And, and, and Chris, the, the, there are a lot of controllers. When we, when we get into the tower, there are an awful lot of controllers. So just, just getting technical for, for a little moment. Uh, those controllers are, are controlling aircraft some distance away from Dulles. Um, and I just wondered, in, in your own role, um, what's your region of responsibility? Would, would you be controlling traffic hundreds of miles away up the, the seaboard? 
probably not. I mean, I think we're looking at really, really a 10-mile radius at an absolute push from the tower. But I, but I think, as we've alluded to before and we'll probably will do throughout this conversation, Die Hard 2 was ahead of its time. And uh, I think maybe that's the plan for uh, navigation service providers to go over the years to cut costs and, and have everything centrally located in a tower. It seems like a decent idea to me. We need bigger towers, though, probably. Bigger restrooms and bigger vending machines. <laughs> Absolutely. And some of the contingencies in place. So basically, they lose their their, their, their ILS uh, and they, they lose their, their radio. So what, what have we got if, if all of that goes down? So radio systems, we've just got the one or is there a few in place or? I'm usually panicking too much at that stage to to, to worry. Um, to be brutally honest, my friend. Um, uh, I think that if we've got um, some backup radios, which we can turn to, um, which uh, are there for that eventuality. We've got backup landing systems as well. It's We're not all restricted to ILS approaches. And I'm sure Lindsay can jump in here and tell us about some of the different types of approaches you can make to airports. Yeah, yeah and, also, and also the kit and equipment that we've got on board. So, you know, there's so much redundancy built into the jets these days. We've got three individual uh, VHF radio systems. So if one falls down, you've got a second one and it's it's very rare for one to go, you know, let alone two. Um, if we also lose comms with you guys, then we've got our transponder that we can put the 7600 code up, which means we've got a loss of comms. So people on the ground know that, you know, we get some peace and quiet for a minute and we can't really hear you. Yeah. Obviously, that's a, a two-way thing as well. Um, and also different airports publish different procedures. So, you know, if we lose communications, we can look up the air, air sort of the airport specific notes and it will tell you what to do, whether you fly a specific heading, for how long and, and all that information is published. So, you know, if we do lose uh, communications with the ground, there's a whole host of different um, measures and, and uh, sort of redundancies put into place. Yeah, and obviously, I it's, think it's, I was just, it's a movie, but um, but one of the things that really gets me, like the, the, the annoying bits of the movie, is those aircraft are just left to circle, run out of fuel, and then crash. So presumably, there'd be there'd be a, a few little safety nets in place there that you would get to a point and decide to do something different. Is that the case? Oh, what for, uh, for the for us? Do you mean? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. So it's all done at the planning stage. And before we've even taken off from wherever we're taking off from and we think right how much uh, contingency fuel would we like and also how much fuel would we like to divert to somewhere else so we always have like a secondary or a backup airfield so if we were coming to Heathrow and let's say for example um it, it shared the same sort of event as Windsor 114 then we would just shoot off to Sandstead and hope that they hadn't got that far and, and we take an appropriate amount of fuel for that and then when we're holding depending if it's the outer marker or wherever they want us to hold um then we would have a decision point where we think actually we're getting fairly low on fuel now this is the point whether we need to decide to land at Heathrow or whether we divert to somewhere else it's probably one of the biggest potholes in the in the entire movie isn't it the the ILS and the the takeover of the, the VHF radios it's uh, it, it creates a fantastic peril and it, it spurs the story on but even back in the nineteen, uh, in the late eighties, when it was written and, and shot, it, 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 there was the backups in place to ensure that, that could never happen in reality. But we, we wouldn't have an amazing Christmas movie without it. Indeed, I think we've spoken in the past about how the, the, the air crew don't be able to don't seem to be able to see anything at all. But the view from the control tower looks yeah. fairly unimpeded. Definitely, I, I use. Sorry. 
I, I, I use the, the great source of knowledge that is Google, and I, uh, I Googled Dulles Tower's height, and I think it was about seven meters taller than Heathrow Tower. And and we know what it's like in bad weather, how the tower itself is in cloud, where the airfield is, is normal visibility, and we have procedures to operate in those conditions. And it's it's fantastic in the movie. They've got the most amazing visibility out of the Washington area in this horrendous snowstorm, uh, yet the aircraft can't see the runways. Incredible. Um, now, in the movie, when we get into the control tower, the, the entire operation of the of the whole airport, including air traffic, police, engineering, and even the arrivals boards in the terminal, is controlled by one man, Mr. Trudeau, uh, played magnificently by Fred Dalton Thompson. Um, CJ, does he remind you of any watch managers that you've had in your illustrious career? I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of fantastic watch managers in my career, as you well know. And None of them measure up, I'm afraid, to Mr. Trudeau. Uh, the, the gravitas that man has, um, his ability to uh, control a crisis, uh, I, I bow down in his, in his in his presence. I love the fact that when he speaks, the entire control tower staff all turn away from their radar screens and windows to listen to every word that he says, completely yeah, disregarding yeah. the aircraft. There's, there's a fantastic scene where the engineer, I think, is it Leslie Barnes? Um, yes. The engineer comes up with a plan to go to the uh, Annex Skywalk to to steal the transmitters there, and he he delivers the plan to to Mr. Trudeau, and uh, the plan's sold. That's it; it's action. And he he, he he gives three simple instructions: beg, steal, and kill to get the parts required <laughs> to make it happen. And you know, you read the dialogue on the page, and you think that's just stupid, that's corny, that will never work. But he delivers it with such a plum. I, mean, I, I wanted to go and help. I was helping Leslie Barnes trying to find the bits he needed. I was that I was that involved. And that's he almost made it. It was almost a project delivered on time and on budget, <laughs> and it, <laughs> it just missed out at the end. Um, but also, I have to say that my sort of takeaway. I mean, you know, I've seen you guys here on a Zoom call. Um, being the kind of TV celeb that you are for Heathrow, I've seen you in action. You know, in the tower. But my kind of takeaway from this is that. All their traffic controllers, especially the ones, you know, that are the shift watch leaders, are definitely chain smokers, have at least a pint of coffee that somehow just is topped up for the duration of their shift. That's exactly that. And that you just bark the orders at everyone as they're controlling the aircraft. Is that, is that true? Or? It, it's not far off. Okay. I think I think the smoking in the workplace has probably calmed things down a little bit, the, the lack of that. Uh, but uh, the rest of the caricature, uh, I'm, I'm quite happy to go with that. Okay, fine. Okay. Mental models getting better and better from <laughs> before work to, to what I'm seeing now. Yeah. I, th I think a member of staff that doesn't really get the credit that he did, deserves is, um, is Marvin, the janitor, uh, who lives Absolutely. beneath the runway uh, and has blueprints for the entire airport in his cupboard, uh, which could be seen as a security risk, but I think we go with it. I think there's a there's a lovely parallel between Marvin's character and John McClane in that uh, uh, he's very protective about his records. If you remember in the movie, and yes. they're all 75, 75. Or I can't remember what the speed is there, but he he's very anti the newfangled 45s. Doesn't want those because they don't sound as good. And if yes. you think about it, John McClane's character, uh, Bruce Willis's character, sorry, John McClane is a, a Luddite as they come. He hates technology. In fact, he would be disgusted that we're doing this via Teams and broadcasting this on the internet and talking about this movie. It would be horrible to him. 
And I just love that they found a character that is, is in parallel to to his belief system as well. It is. It's 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 stunning. Um, but let's get on to the sad state of of Windsor one one four, a great airline, um, very fuel efficient fleet, the DC eight. Um, in that famous scene, the terrorists managed to change sea level by effectively dialing down the glide slope of the instrument landing system by 200 feet, um, ultimately resulting in disaster for the crew and passengers. The question is, CJ, could it be done? Um, well, a few days ago, we said no. And for clarity, I went and spoke to some of our engineering team at Heathrow uh, yesterday or the day before, and they looked at me like I was mad to even ask the question. Um, the, the truth of the matter is you can't turn a dial to change sea level on an ILS. It simply wouldn't work. Right not. That, that, that is it. That is a huge shame. I mean, it sounds quite technical, but Lindsay, for the, for the benefit of our viewers and indeed some of our controllers, how does an ILS actually work? So it kind of sends out a, an artificial slope, like a vertical sort of, uh, sorry, a kind of 45 degree angle slope um, from the edge of the runway out sort of into space and it's got a vertical profile and a horizontal profile and pilots want to fly down that slope and it will lead them and throw them out at the runway on the threshold and so the, the sort of role of the air traffickers is to vector or to steer us towards that slope so we have a localizer uh, which does a horizontal sort of tracking and a glide slope which is the vertical tracking. And it's typically a three degree slope. It varies from airport to airport. So some places like London City have got a very steep approach, uh, but typically it's a three degree slope, which for pilots is anywhere between 700 and 800 feet per minute. And we capture the, the localizer and that basically points us at the runway. And then we capture the glide slope and that gives us the rate of descent or the, the vertical profile that's required to, to throw us out at the threshold of the runway. And, and how low does that take you? How low can you go? Um, well, if it's bad weather or fog, then you, you can auto land the aircraft and it, and it captures that glide slope right down to, to the ground. Incredible, incredible stuff. And what backup have you got though? If all that doesn't work, you've got no ILS at Heathrow and, and you can't divert, you've got, to, you've got to do something else, but the weather's not so bad. What other modes of landing have you got? What, what, how can you get the aircraft down? Well, not that, not that the controllers would allow it that often, but number one redundancy is to do a visual approach and to look out the window and think, right, I can see the runway, so I'm going to point and land at the runway. So I guess that's the kind of first bit of, you know, backup and redundancy. But there's different types of approaches. We used to have a microwave landing system at Heathrow. You can now fly GPS approaches and sort of they're kind of out of service now, but there's other types of uh, non-precision approaches like a VOR approach or an NDB approach, and those are all available to to, to us to fly. Fabulous. And CJ, we we found that Colonel Stewart did all of this this madness at a at an abandoned church uh, just off the airfield. Um, effectively, the first ever remote tower. It was indeed. Uh, he does it from the altar at one stage as well, which is very uh, iconic. Uh, the, funnily enough, AD, there's a there's a, a church just in Stanwell, which is one mile south of the airport uh, of Heathrow, and it's very good sight lines from the tower. This time of year, I usually drive past just to make sure terrorists haven't taken over or anything like that, and make sure it's tops normal. But um, just want to go back to to Lindsay's point. There is that. The movie seems to gloss over the point that uh, aircraft have radio altimeters and 
and such a piece of technology would have, you know, averted the disaster of Windsor 114, wouldn't it? But, Indeed. Yeah, so I don't know, I mean, I can talk a little bit about the radio altimeters on board for, for those that, that don't know, but a rad out or radio altimeter is the um, is the kind of synthetic voice that here you could hear sometimes if you play a simulator games or if you hear the sim, and it gives us call-outs in height above the ground. So it normally comes into action at around 2,500 feet, and then it gives out sort of predetermined height, so typically a 1,000, and then you could get, you know, 50, 40, 30 and that cadence um, of the rad out is how you kind of judge your rate of descent towards the ground and we have really robust um sort of altimeter setting procedures that had Windsor 114 employed probably wouldn't have had the, the outcome that it did so then the story wouldn't have worked would it so <laughs> it just wouldn't have worked this the yeah, movie would have nah. been rubbish nah. Uh, yeah. so i'm guessing they weren't they weren't stable by their by their final gate no <laughs> they should have thrown it away um, and then yeah, they couldn't, sorry, I was going to say they couldn't see the runway either until the very last second. Yet the view from the tower was 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 perfect. So, um, and, and, so and when when they did see it, they appeared to be in an almost <laughs> vertical nose down attitude. Uh, um, a London City style, style approach, was, I think, London City approach, yeah. and and then it was strange because for an aircraft that was running low on fuel, um, Stephen did say that it was the biggest explosion ever seen in a movie up to that point. Yes. Yes, I, I, no, I noticed this last night when I watched it again, I, and it caught my eye. The, the explosion was ridiculous for an aircraft that was running on on fumes. We're led to believe. Incredible. Um, the movie's dripping with cheesy ATC language. That Hollywood, I mean, it's done a great job in dreaming this stuff up. But that immortal line of stack and pack em and rack em, um, I'd like to see the CAA actually adopt that phraseology. Um, and Lindsay, what's what's your experience of, of that kind of language in your global travels ar around the world in ATC? Is that the kind of thing that you hear? Well, I must say across across the board, the the kind of standard use of RT is excellent. Um, the Americans have it a little bit punchier. They speak very quickly and they kind of have a little bit more slang than than perhaps you know other places that that we go. Um, but generally, it's it's all very standard, and you know. Stackham and Packham isn't something that I've, you know, heard day to day, unfortunately, as much as I, I think that would be excellent. Cynthia, what do you think? I mean, I, I, I'd love to use it, but I've, I've got no idea what Mr. Trudeau is actually implying by it, doing it, those three things and, at the same time. It's a shame we haven't got a terminal control uh, at Co on, on, on this call because I'd love their opinion on this as well. I'm, I'm not actually sure what Stackham, Packham and Rackham actually means, but Again, it just sounds amazing, doesn't it? And and when it's when the line's delivered by uh, Fred Trudeau, it's 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 awesome. But I think I think it's, it, the movie, if you if you strip out all these little bits, the movie would actually only be about five minutes long, wouldn't it? It'd be John McClane going to the airport, getting the car towed, meeting his wife off the plane, and then going <laughs> to the hotel for a bottle of champagne. Credits end. So uh, I, I'm, I, it's not a bad pitch. No, I, I don't think it would have made the box office millions. It would have, it did do. So I'm kind of glad they went a little bit uh, uh, theatrical license on it. Absolutely. And, and if, go on, Lindsay. You're going to say something. I also think that if you were to employ that at work, as long as you say it confidently, people yes. would fall into place. I, I reckon that if you said that confidently, an aircraft would probably reply, "Roger, 
I would go, yeah, okay, obviously got that because I wouldn't want to be the one to sort Correct. of say what, I don't what know what that means. Mean. So I would just, I'd fall into place. Correct. I, I'm on a night. I'm on a night shift tonight. I'm thinking it's. I'll go into work and and I'll just say stack and pack and rack them to the guys I'm working with, and I'll I'll get their reaction. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're just going to look at me like I'm a bit simple. But uh, yeah, maybe Ada, you could write a procedure for us uh, with the headline stack and pack and rack them, and just tell us what we we've got to do, and we'll take it from there. Let's see how that goes. Um, yeah, for for the aviation geeks uh, out there amongst us, there, there is an absolute smorgasbord of aircraft in this movie it is an absolute delight and and i just wondered for you two what what's your faves in the movie when you look at it well, I, like, I like that one I, I mean i didn't have a, a sort of specific favorite but what i did enjoy was counting the engines from scene to scene because there was no there was very poor continuity and sometimes the aircraft had windsor 114 had you know three engines sometimes i had four it just very much depended on what the weather conditions were doing as to how many engines it had. So that was, I quite enjoyed that. Well, I think that's, that's similar in a lot of Hollywood movies. I, I think in um, in Home Alone, uh, is it Home Alone 1 where the family go to Paris? Yeah. Two. So, oh, I think it's one. Oh. We'll discuss that later. But Sorry, uh, one. Yeah, sorry. But the, I think they depart in a DC-10 and land in a 757. Yes. Um, so there's quite a jump. But, but I mean, some of the other aircraft in there, CJ, Tristar's, Jumbo's 77s. It's, a it's the queen of the skies. It's the queen of the skies for me, AD, always. The Jumbo yeah. is 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 the one and only plane for me. As a confessed av geek and looking up to work in, in the industry, whenever you see a Jumbo, it always makes you look up and, and take notice. Indeed. And, and then we get to General Esperanza's aircraft. Um, they come up with a call sign, Foreign Military One. And I, I, I feel they've given up a bit. I had used that regularly when I when I was flying. To fly as an FO. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I think they've given up a bit there. They, they could have thought of something slightly better. It's a bit generic. And, and the and the aircraft type CJ is it, is it one that you've seen at Heathrow before? No, I, it's not seen at any of the places I've worked uh, before. Strange enough, so I don't think it it exists. Uh, but uh, I, I'd love to be proven wrong. Well, we think it's, and the, and the audience will correct us, we think it's a it's a Fairchild C-132. Sounds right, yeah. Um, but that's a propeller-driven aircraft. Indeed. Um, and whereas General Esperanza's aircraft has jets attached, which, Lindsay, I guess that would be an issue. What do you mean, if it was originally meant for propellers? Or yes, is that, is that okay? Probably rip the wings off. That, <laughs> you know, that's my technical appraisal of it. Probably so, not well. So, Lindsay, the flight's at the end of the film, once once John McLean's blown up the 747 cargo combi. Um, the, the aircraft that are in the air then then carry out a landing in some pretty serious snow, uh, using the, the burning wreckage of the jumbo as some kind of visual guidance. Sure. Um, what's it like landing in those conditions? Um, well, in my short career so far, I haven't used sort of burning wreckage as a visual reference point to sort of home in on and land. Um, so I could only imagine it would be epic. <laughs> if, you know, if that was your, if that was your visual kind of picture, you'd feel like a rock star flying through that, no doubt. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Also, uh, I also noticed on that scene, um, maybe just, you know, a little bit careless or maybe there was a lot going on, all landing with a tailwind. Yeah. And also, 
the rate at which they landed i don't i don't even think they would have, you know i don't think they would have vacated the one ahead it was pretty punchy the, uh, the approach speed even punchy for Heathrow yeah. standards yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, it would have been a struggle using the land after instruction cg of course of course mate not available at night uh, with uh, uh possibly i think it's probably a wet runway as well um I noticed during that scene as well that as they're as the fight on the wing takes place and um, uh, and they're taxiing out, they're applying the uh, reduced engine taxi uh, scenario uh, that I know a lot of airlines favour these days to save fuel on the taxi out. Uh, it appears I think the number two engine is not even idling; it's just windmilling, uh, which is incredible because I'm sure one of the bad guys manages to get chopped up by said engine at some stage during he, that fight. He does. He does. Um, uh, it's major someone. Uh, but the interesting yes, thing major, about major that, Grimes. Major Grimes, I think good, it is. Good work. Um, that actual aircraft uh, was used by the airline, the cargo airline Evergreen. Um, and a few years after the movie was made, they actually departed from Anchorage, had a major engine problem. And that engine, engine number two, actually fell off the aircraft. Uh, and I just wonder if... But bits of major grant are still in the number one compressor it's probably that explains everything the the securings and the bearings were only for, for, for propellers yes. <laughs> i mean so i'm an investigator but that would be my assessment where do you think it ranks not so much as christmas as, as an aviation movie as an aviation and an atc movie you know looking at other movies that, are, that have made it onto the screen with aircraft uh is, is it up there up there for entertainment or factual because I think there's a very different um, range that we could we could work with here but on the, on the entertainment scale yeah I'd say it's it's pretty it's good pretty high. Yeah. yeah I think I think factual there's a there's a, a very small list of, of movies that fit that that uh, bill entertainment wise it's it's a stunner isn't it it really is a stunner um, and it just goes to show that here we are, three aviation professionals. Uh, we love the movie, even though we know that it's completely wrong from a technical perspective. We, we recognise that and we, and we love it for all its flaws regardless. And, and, and finally, is it, is it a Christmas movie? Is Die Hard 2 a Christmas movie? Well, I would like to say from my jumper and attire today, and, and sort of, Adi, I've noticed that you've made a, a significant effort as well. But it's got to be a Christmas movie, right? Yeah, I, I think so, Chris. It, it ticks every box. It's got Christmas songs. It's got snow. It's got families trying to get together uh, for the holiday season. And it's got something you only see in American movies, which I'd love to know if really happens for real. Um, and if any of our US or North American uh, viewers can, can answer this question for us. Do Americans carry gifts around the airport at Christmas time? Because you see it in Home Alone, you see it in Die Hard 2. Yes. And I was chatting to my sister-in-law last night, who who lives in the States now, and she said she has never seen gifts being carried around airports at Christmas time. But obviously, it, it ticks the box and fits the bill, and it makes yes. us all feel happy and Christmassy. It, it absolutely does. Um, well, we, we've been absolutely inundated with questions whilst we've been talking here. So I think we, we should really uh, go to some of those from our audience. So, CJ, the first one is, is for you. Um, this is from Robert, and he, he talks about, given the bad guys in Die Hard 2 uh, operate from the abandoned church, um, what's the weirdest building within or near an airfield uh, that you know of? 
Well, thanks for your question, Robert. I got a text this morning, funnily enough, from a, um, a BA-787 uh, pilot who is in Atlanta, and he saw this was going on today. And he told me that at Narita, and maybe uh, I can be corrected, Lindsay, if this is wrong, there's a temple in the middle of uh, two parallel taxiways. Um, I don't know if they do an ATC service from there, but I think that must be pretty striking to see uh, on the airfield uh, horizon. Is, is there a temple in Tokyo? Don't know, no idea. Sure. Not one that Lindsay's been to anyway. Um, <laughs> the next question, we'll stick with CJ for a second, because Francois wants to know, um, what about a light gun? Is that still an option for communicating with pilots if the radio fails? I think I think Francois means, I think we call it an, an oldest lap. That's a, that's a great question, Francois. I, I remember... 20 odd years ago, uh, as a student air traffic controller at, at uh, ATC College, learning about these things. And I think I've seen and held one once, but um, I wouldn't really know what to do with one these days. And I'm pretty sure in such a serious snowstorm, they, they would struggle to see the, uh, the light from the gun as well. But it's a great bit of kind of ATC aviation trivia uh, and to know that these things used to exist and used to be used at small airports without radios, didn't they, Eddie? Absolutely, absolutely correct. Um, Lindsay, we've got a question for you from Kareem, who yeah. says, how much reserve fuel flying time is required for safe flight ops and diversion upon reaching the destination? Um, the fuel reserve for stack and pack em and rack em eventualities. Yeah, sure. So we take, um, so our fuel is made up of several different components to make up the total trip fuel that we required. So we have the fuel for the flight, uh, we have the fuel that we require to divert to our destination. We typically have 30 minutes of contingency fuel that we could fly around for 30 minutes. And then any additional fuel on top of that that we think would be sort of necessary. So if we know that there's expected delays at the destination, we would obviously take a little bit more. Um, if the weather is you know, forecast to be foggy, then, then we'd take more for that as well. Um, so we have a, our legal minimum requirements, but then we also have the pilot's discretion to, to take some more. Um, should we think it would be appropriate for the day and the conditions? Fabulous. Thank you very much. Um, Chris, Carl asks, were there really beacons like the one that they had at Dulles at the outer marker? Uh, thanks, Carl. Um, apparently so. Um, but uh, when I asked our engineers again about this the other day, he, he, he was like, yeah, I think these things used to exist, but I've never looked after them. So it shows that... Um, in the 20 odd years that I've been doing air traffic control, I'm pretty sure we used to have outer and inner markers at Heathrow in that time, but we've never used them, maybe. Can you, can you recall? No, I do remember, again, learning about them at college. You had an outer marker, a middle marker, and an inner marker. That's right. And they were yeah. associated with a colour coding system on board the aircraft that told you where you were on the ILS approach. I guess that was before digital DME readouts that could tell a pilot how far he or she was on the, on the approach. That's um, right. So, Carl, we have we have distance DME distance measuring equipment now, so the, the flight crew can see their exact distance from touchdown. And, and interestingly, sometimes that can be a little bit of a trick. So, in America, um, quite often the DME is two miles offset from the threshold of the runway. Yes. So, if you were to set your kind of um, position monitor to say how far is it to the threshold, it would say it's ten miles. But the DME distance might read 12 or, you know, yes. two miles out. So 
we often brief and say this is what we're going to expect from the readings. So if we're going to plan for, you know, dropping the gear at a set, at a set distance, we'll make sure it's this and we're not going to be two miles short or, you know, too much. Yeah. Amazing. You have to transpose that then back in the planning stage, right? Excellent. Um, Louise gets in touch, not with a question, but with a statement saying, for your information, uh, Bangkok Airport um, has a golf course in between the runways. So I'm not sure if you've seen that one, Lindsay. I haven't, but also what, um, what quite a lot of um, pilots talk about is that there's always an IKEA near an airport. Amazing. Yeah, like loads of the places that we fly to, you know, especially in Europe, for some reason, there always seems to be an IKEA in proximity to the airfield. And I guess you can see it from the air because it's massive and blue and yellow. Exactly. I, I think it's part of planning regulations. When airports are built, they have to have an IKEA built next to them. Um, when I was uh, when I was a young trainee many many years ago, I did six weeks training at Birmingham Airport, and there's uh, an IKEA in Warsaw, and the pilots called it the IKEA One Alpha arrival on runway one five, I believe. And that's always stuck with me. That's the first time I've heard a pilot mention it since. Amazing. Um, Chris, a question from Chris. Um, have you guys, actually a question for both of you. Chris first. Have you guys ever knowingly guided, or Lindsay flown, a plane with perps in custody on board? Uh, and would you tell us if you could? Well, um, perps. Perpetrators. Okay. Breaking um, the law. Um, I guess, yeah, we, I'm sure we have. I, I can think of plenty of times where we've had calls to the tower for the police to ask us to not, to pass on a message to the flight crew to not let passengers disembark an aircraft yes. because they need to go on first to to arrest somebody and take somebody to custody. But yeah, I'm sure we have. And uh, Lindsay? Oh yeah, we. Um, so in a previous airline that I worked for, we, I wouldn't say regularly because that would probably be a bit strong. But um, Was we, it Con Air? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I worked for Conair, all the time. Um, but we we did occasionally uh, carry sort of people in custody, and and the normal sort of um, plan for that is that they would board first with their escort officers, and then everyone else would board, and then at the end they would be the last people on, and then be taken off at the end. But the um the rest of the passengers weren't aware. Um, Sophie asks a question uh, which I can probably answer, which is, um, were there any, were there any, was there any consultation with industry experts when writing or filming the movie? So I actually asked Stephen D'Souza this. He may, he may answer it in the cut that we've done, but if he doesn't, then yes, he did. He had, he had two or three people that he went to, uh, and they gave him terms like ILS, Outer Marker, uh, Annex Skywalk. Uh, key bits of phraseology that he was able to weave into the movie, so he was he was using those. Uh, next question, uh, Lindsay Jordan asks, um, what iconic aircraft manoeuvre or stunt do you think should feature in a future Die Hard instalment? It's got to be something that the Red Arrows would have as one of their regular items in a display season. Ideally, something that's um, not just one aircraft. You know, like a sort of barrel roll that involves both of them. Um, yeah, I think many aircraft sort of upside down, yeah. off. You know, slow motion shots. I don't want to. I don't want to sell myself here as a director, but um, that would be you know, that would be my start point. It's it's always iconic in movies when you get that inside the cabin upside down shot. 
yes. where things drop into the ceiling. It's that's always good good to see. Um, CJ, are there any aircraft manoeuvres that you'd like to see more in the movie? Uh, I, I'd love to see a jumbo do a loop the loop, and uh, yeah, and, and let's just throw a barrel roll in there just for good measure as well. Absolutely. Um, Philip asks a good question. Um, Chris, let's ask you first. What's the reason for having the speed limit on approach at Heathrow? 160 knots to 4 DME. But it's, it's, it's a good question, Philip, because Lindsay alluded earlier to the fact that um, we don't normally allow visual approaches into, into Heathrow. And the reason behind that is that an ILS approach, having everybody on an ILS approach, allows our controllers to create a really efficient stream of arrivals all perfectly spaced apart. And with a visual approach where the pilots would turn in at, at, at the point that's good for them visually, we wouldn't be able to assure that separation. So by having ILS approaches, uh, aircraft following radar headings and following uh, correct speed control, it means we can land upwards of 44 aircraft an, an hour in good weather conditions. So that speed control is really, really important to ensure that the aircraft don't get too close apart, sorry, too close together or equally aren't too close apart and we waste landing slots. Incredible. Is that is that a good speed for you guys as well, Lindsay? Yeah, it, it seems to work for us. And um, the more efficient the aircraft wing is, it's kind of more difficult to slow down. Um, so we would maybe bring the last stage of flap out and hold it at 160 knots, whereas on the 747, because it had that massive wing, it slowed down really easily when you put the last stage of flap out. So it's it's good for us with slightly different techniques as to how to fly it, depending on when to configure. But that's very much dependent on the aircraft and, and also the conditions, maybe, you know, the wind, headwind, for example. Excellent. We've got our last uh, little entry who is um, from Sophie, who is in Canada, who says that uh, her take on stack and pack em and rack em is stack is to hold vertically. Pack would mean spacing to the minimum possible condition and rack sequence the aircraft. Uh, it's definitely not as entertaining, uh, but she agrees that she would love to use it. What do you think? <clears throat> I'm sold. Yeah, just write me the procedure, Aileen. I'll use it straight away. No problem at all. And we've managed to squeeze one last bonus one in uh, for Lindsay. This is from Joe. Um, uh, Lindsay, if you saw John McLean on your passenger list, uh, what would your reaction be? So I, I get this kind of pit feeling in, in my tummy that it's probably going to be an eventful flight. And, you know, I'd obviously invite them up to the flight deck and, and ask them to take a seat. And then I'd probably just say, you know, you've got it from here and, and sort of shimmy up the jetty Absolutely. and just let them let them crack on well you could probably use the ejection seat on the 350 correct straight sure. out the hatching ceiling perfect I, I think we need to remember that john mclean is a luddite and would struggle with the glass cockpit of modern aircraft so he'd be better off in a classic maybe a jumbo classic perhaps john mclean on an a350 on that bombshell um <laughs> i hope that you've enjoyed that half as much as I have, uh, but I'm afraid that that really is all we've got time for. A huge thank you to my guests, Chris and Lindsay, and to you for watching. From everybody at Nats and uh, our partners at the Nakatomi Corporation, we'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a happy, safe and healthy New Year. We will be back in 2022 with more content, so please join us for that. For now, Lindsay is going to head back to the sim to practice some steep approaches on the DC-8 NEO. Uh, I'm off to catch a flight to Washington Dulles with Windsor Airlines 
And CG is going to check into the airport motel to limber up for his naked Tai Chi. <laughs> so now, finally, the moment you've all really been waiting for, Hollywood legend, Mr. Stephen D'Souza. yippee ki air traffickers. <laughs> Stephen D'Souza, welcome to Altitude. Thank you so much for agreeing to come and speak to us about your second Christmas masterpiece, Die Hard 2. Uh, thank you. And, and after that, that welcome, I, I feel obligated to ask, can I uh, retract my tray table and remove my seatbelt? L- like most people that work in aviation, I'm a huge fan of the movie. Um, it's, it's set very much inside of the control tower at Dulles International Airport. Now, did you work with actual air traffic control staff when you were writing that movie? Or is that all from your brilliant imagination? Uh, uh, no, uh, uh, thank you for the compliment my imagination, but uh, indeed, uh, believe it or not, even on my more fantastic movies, um, we had some uh, excellent advisors, and I, we had uh, people from air traffic control, and I took a visit to the uh, air traffic tower here, and uh, uh, I'm flattered and, and astonished to hear that air traffic controllers like this movie because I felt like I took so many liberties that like uh, there'd be a picture at every air traffic control of me and it says, do not cash this man's checks. Uh, in, all the interior terminal scenes were filmed uh, here in Los Angeles. Oh, right. Um, and uh, pretending to be uh, uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And we had to make, the, like like the shirt you're wearing, Windsor Airlines, we had to make invent, uh, I, I invented that name. We had to oh, sit really? Around Is that you? Yeah, well, we had, to, we had to sit around inventing fake airlines because no real airline would want to, Yes. The, uh, in the motion picture. Um, but uh, the air traffic control tower in the movie was a complete set. The, the only, oh, wow. uh, re- yeah, the, the, the only uh, uh, actual airport locations uh, were the interiors of, you know, the gift shop, the coffee shop, and the, uh, the, uh, the terminals where people start running and screaming. Where did you get Windsor Airlines from? Is that just, uh, well, uh, it was uh, you know, looking, looking for some kind of uh, name that the lawyers would say would be okay. Uh, I, this seemed to be like a, an obvious choice. That's all. I, it was. It was either that or Camilla Airlines. It was my idea to, to that that uh, Bruce should try and save a plane and fail because right. one of the great compliments I got on the first movie from you know peers, people in, in, that, mm. that I work with, they would say, um, "Wow, that, great movie, Steve. Um, I really thought Bruce was going to die at the end." Uh, and I've heard that from a lot of people, and I thought it was a great compliment, because once upon a time, mainstream motion pictures, American movies certainly, the hero could win but die. Paul Newman, you know, it's not yes. just Sean Bean. Yes. Sean Bean does not have a monopoly yes. of dying yes. in movies. So okay. um, the fact that Bruce seems so vulnerable and so human in Die Hard, which was an antidote to the uh, kind of steroid-ripped heroes yes. that I also was responsible for in the 80s, that was a great compliment. And he also suffered mightily, you know, yes. and was guilt-ridden and all these things. So now when you do a sequel, you're saying, okay, we're doing a sequel. You're pretty sure he won't die in this movie. How do you get that vulnerability back? So that's yes. where the idea came from, okay. that, that uh, he should try and rescue, uh, uh, rescue a plane. Anyway, we tested the movie, and as, of course, you could have predicted, the audience did not hate us, the filmmakers. Yeah. They hated the villains even more. Yes. And, but now now that I knew that, I made sure that we used all the footage. I put There was even more footage of that adorable little girl 
on the yes. plane. Yes. And all the joke, all the joke. I did all. I, I just loaded the the scene on the airplane. All oh, right. With enough dialogue to convince you they were going to make it. Some of the stuff that you you write in there, some of the the technical phraseology, you know, the the ILS, the instrument landing system, yeah. all of that stuff is is real stuff. So, how important to you is it is, is to get that technical detail, or is it not really that important for a wider audience? Well, I think it's very important for you to believe in the problems and the solutions that that the characters have. Uh, and in the uh, professionalism of the people we meet in the movie. So in the case of this movie, for all of those reasons, we, I did as much research as possible, taking the liberties I would have to take you know, for, for the fictional story. But to give you an example, if this were, um, um, I mentioned earlier, Star Wars, mm. you know, there's a lot of meaningless technical dialogue yes. in a movie like Star Wars to make it sound like the people know what they're doing. And once I learned some factual things from our advisors but then i figured what can go wrong mm -hmm. and how do we remedy that so the sequence where um uh uh the colonel deliberately crashes the plane by changing the indicator of ground level yes, yes. Uh, i don't know whether that could actually be done but if it could actually be done supposedly that would you know uh that would work uh the um idea that they can hijack uh the beacon uh, yes. To do voice transmissions, yes. that might be a stretch. I don't know if that's plausible, but in movie terms, it seems plausible. E e easily in movies, yeah. You you're also known as the father of the zinger, the big, powerful one-liner, and the immortal line, stack and pack em and rack em, delivered by the late, great Fred Thompson, is still iconic to anybody that works in air traffic control. Where did that line come from? Well, what's crazy is a lot of people uh, think that that's some kind of real, like, air traffic control jargon. And from what you're saying, maybe it has become such. I don't know. Have, have, you, have people actually said that when things back up? Uh, never. But occasionally, just in the control tower with a, with a mug of coffee, it is, it is heard in the background by somebody. All right. Well, I just made that up because it sounded cool. We know that you're a, a big believer that, uh, that Die Hard is definitely a Christmas movie. But what about Die Hard 2? It's obviously still Christmas Eve, and we've got Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow at the end. But do you think it, it ticks the boxes? Well, I, I, I would say that it, it probably ticks almost as many boxes. Uh, I think that Die Hard just got all the attention because it started becoming this perennial that, uh, that plays on television all the time. Uh, and so that started a great debate. But I think you're quite right. Die Hard 2 is, uh, you know, I'd have to get up my calipers and my uh, my my red tape and my my is it sunny in Philadelphia chart, you know, my 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 uh, psycho killer chart, uh, the opening uh, seven, like the opening credits of seven. But uh, I think it probably checks all the boxes. Stephen D'Souza, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you about our favorite film. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you have a final message to all of the NAT staff and indeed all air traffic control staff all around the world this Christmas time. Uh, yes, as you gather around uh, your trees for celebration and you uh, take the, the, the presents out of hiding and bring them out, um, stack them, pack them and rack them. <laughs> I knew you'd say that. Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Bye-bye. 
This episode of Altitude was brought to you by Nats, the UK's leading air traffic control company. You can find more episodes of the show at nats.aero forward slash altitude.